0: Consider with me for a minute your own sin in the quiet of your mind and your heart this morning. Think with me about your sin, about your particular temptations, the things that you as an individual are uniquely drawn to when it comes to sin, the sins that reside in each of our hearts. And consider when you are tempted, to those particular sins? When it comes to those temptations that you face with your sin, what lies are you tempted to believe in order to take part in that sin? What lies are you tempted to believe in order to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin? Are you, like me, tempted to believe lies like oh, it won't hurt anyone. Lies like, oh, it isn't a big sin, at least not in comparison to the sins of that person over there. Lies like, it won't have any consequences. No one will find out. It will bring me pleasure, but it won't cost anything. Sin is deceitful. Sin deceives us. Sin lies to us. And it is this lie that is at the heart of our passage this morning in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 20 to 35. This lie that our sin can bring pleasure and it won't cost anything. It is against, in the face of such lies, that our passage declares the reality that every sin, Even secret sin will cost and does cost. We have started a series in the book of Proverbs that we have been um, spending the last several months in, every couple weeks. We're now in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 20 to 35. We've seen so far that the book of Proverbs is a book of wisdom, Proverbs is an education course in true wisdom. We saw how the Proverbs are these kinds of writings that are well-known. There are Proverbs throughout the world. Every culture has their own version of this, of sharing wisdom through short statements, through these wise ideas summarized in little statements. These Hebrew Proverbs were collected by King Solomon. Many of them were written by Solomon himself. The the son of David, the king of Israel. And Solomon was given much wisdom because he asked God for wisdom. And God blessed him with it. The book of Proverbs is this education course in wisdom. And the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs is a dialogue between a father, a mother, and a young son. And this father and mother are seeking to get as much wisdom as they can into the mind and heart of their young son before he goes out into the world and faces all kinds of temptations. He is going to face many temptations. Temptations from within, temptations from without. Temptation from evil people, evil men, who will seek to lead him into all kinds of sin, even murder. And even as we see in our passage, the temptation of evil women, the temptation of the allure of sexual immorality. As we begin our Passage this morning, let me give you, if you're taking notes, the main point. The main point for you from our passage is this. Sexual sin comes at a terrible cost. Sexual sin comes at a terrible cost. And as we look through our passage this morning, we'll have three points. Point number one, protection. Point number two, beauty. And point number three, cost. Point number one, protection, verses 20 to 24. Point number two, beauty, verses 25 and 26. And point number three, cost, verses 27 to 35. It's my prayer this morning as we look at this passage that we will see the true cost of our own sin. The cost that will be to ourselves but ultimately that can be paid for by Christ if we, have, if we have faith to believe in Him. Let me, as we begin, read through Proverbs 6, verses 20 to 35. This is God's Word. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart, Always tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes in to his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief. He steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse though you multiply gifts. This is God's word. We'll begin in point number one, which is protection. Verses 20 to 24. We see at the beginning of our passage, this repeated phrase over and over again. My son, my son. We see these repeated themes, similar versions of the same ideas over and over again as the father, as the mother tries to do whatever he and she can to get these truths from God's word ringing in his, in their child's ears. They are doing whatever they can, whatever it takes to help their son to understand what is true to understand the reality that their son has been made in God's image, that he's been born into the world that God has created, and that he has been born under authority. He's given a taste of authority as he grows up and is young in the home of his father and mother. But ultimately, he is under a much greater authority, which is the authority of God. As all of us who have been created by God and placed in his world and are created in his image, all of us are under God's authority. And our lives are not our own, but are to be lived before Him, knowing that He is good, that He has created us to be good like Him, to imitate what He is like, and to live lives, loving Him, enjoying Him, and living lives before Him that please Him. But the reality is, all of us, though we have been created in God's image and created by God, all of us are sinners. So all of us are not born innocent, but born guilty. And all of us have within our own hearts, guilt and a proclivity towards sin that draws us into temptations, that draws us away from God, that draws us to rebel against God and to seek to live our lives on our own without God, apart from Him and even against Him. It is this reality of sin that is bound up in the heart of children that causes this father and this mother to be over and over and over again, reminding their young child, to not forget these truths. Because the reality is, the sin in our hearts and in our minds causes us to be forgetful when it comes to the truth of God's Word. So look at the commands here at the beginning. My son, keep your father's commandment. Do not forsake your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. Here is a command to remember. A command to remember. The father and the mother are calling their child to remember their teaching, knowing that the teaching that they're giving to him is really a reflection of God's teaching in the law. So then they repeat the kinds of things that we find in the law, like in Deuteronomy 6, 6-9, through 9, about having not only loving God, but then having God's commands on our heart and binding them on our heart, and even tying them around ourselves. In other words, not only having our hearts drawn to God, but then doing whatever it takes externally to remember these things, to remind ourselves of these things. I don't know what you do to remind yourself of things, whether you put things on a calendar or a to-do list, but he's talking here, the parents are talking here about finding some way of putting remembrances in front of you so that you don't forget the truth. It might be like, Like what my wife does, writing down on three-by-five cards verses and putting them in the kitchen so she sees them or taping them up on our mirror so that when we shave, when I shave, when we look in front of the mirror, we see these verses. Those are good applications of passages like this. Do whatever it takes to remember because we are forgetful and our hearts and our minds are going to lead us to forget these truths that our sin has consequences and that they are a great offense to a holy God. He is encouraging, he and she, the father and mother, are encouraging their child to remember their teaching. I wonder if you have good memories of your parents teaching you good things. I wonder if you, like like me, perhaps like the son here, treasure up those things in your heart and in your mind, remembering The teaching, the advice, even the correction that your parents gave you and holding on to them, remembering them and walking according to them. I remember as a young man on multiple occasions, my dad pulling me and my older brother together at an evening and talking with us about the great temptation of sexual sin. I remember him talking about his own struggles with pornography as a young man and talking with me about what grave danger there is in sexual sin, and calling us, encouraging us to take sexual sin seriously and to stay far from it. I treasure those memories. I can bind those on my heart. I can tie them around my neck. I can remember the good teaching that I received from my parents. I remember my parents taking me as a 15-year-old to a jewelry store, And having me buy a little necklace, a little pendant that was to be a picture, a sign for me of my virginity, to treasure that, to see that as a good thing, as something that was priceless, that once given could not be taken back, and something that could be given as a gift to my future wife. And I remember that being a wonderful hindrance for me when I was tempted to sexual immorality, Because my parents had taught me, no, your life, your body, your sexuality is a gift. It is priceless. And it isn't to be wasted, but to be treasured. And it can be given as a gift like I gave it to my wife on our wedding night and said, here, here's here's a gift. Here's a picture of the gift that I'm giving to you. I've saved myself for you and for you alone. I treasure those teachings that my parents gave to me, reminding me of what's real, what's true. And those things help to protect me and to keep me from temptation. The father and the mother are seeking to do this for their children. Let me encourage you, men and women, if you have any memory like that, treasure it. Perhaps you don't. Perhaps your parents were not teaching you good things. That may be the case for for many of you. Just as there are good and godly and wise parents, there are in an evil world and in a fallen world, there are evil parents. Too. It may be that it's your job to forget the things that you heard from your parents rather than to remember. If that's the case, let me encourage you, brother or sister, you have a heavenly Father who is much better than any earthly father or mother can be, and He loves you and cares for you. You can go to Him and listen to Him and hear good teaching and instruction and treasure up His commands in your heart. And you can find here in the church, in local churches, The kinds of relationships where you will have fathers and mothers in the faith, where you will have older Christians who can teach you and encourage you and remind you of what's true. And you can treasure up those things that you hear and learn. And they can help keep you from temptation. Look at verse 22. The promise here that when you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you for the commandment is a lamp the teaching is a light and the reproofs and discipline of discipline are the way of life to preserve you from the evil woman from the smooth tongue of the adulteress we have here a, a reflection of what we see in psalm 119 you can turn there quickly psalm 119 verse 11 and verse 105 in psalm 119:11 the, the psalmist writes i have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. In Psalm 119, verse 105, it says that your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The parents here have this idea in mind that God's word leads you. It guides you. It's like a lamp to your feet so that you don't stumble in the dark. It lights up the path, the path ahead, the path that God is putting before you that you should walk in. And then there is this encouragement to remember to store up the truth in your heart and in your mind, knowing that those things that are stored up inside your heart and mind can lead you. They can watch over you and protect you. They can even speak to you and talk with you, have a dialogue with you as you're facing temptation. I, as a a child, memorized verses for Sunday school. I can't tell you how many of those verses have come to my mind again and again and again as I face temptation. Those verses that I memorized as a child with my parents and with my Sunday school teachers again and again come into my mind. And they keep me. They watch over me. They speak to me so that in moments of trial and temptation, I'm kept from the allure of temptation and the deceitfulness of sin. Let me encourage you, parents, to be imitating these parents in speaking to your children over and over and over again. To not think that you've done enough. To never think that you've done enough. To teach and to remind your children of what's true. Your children are always in danger. They're always in danger of temptation because our, our hearts, even as a child, are prone to sin. We encourage you parents to teach your children from God's word and plead with them to listen. And particularly to realize that God's Word is a protection against sin and the temptation to sin. You see that the purpose in verse 24 is ultimately protection. That these truths from God's Word that are taught to us, that we treasure up, that we hold on to, that we remind ourselves of, protect us from temptation beforehand. That is, there is a a preparation that needs to happen before we meet the temptation. By the time the temptation is there, it's too late. We must be prepared for such temptation. And God's Word, and the truth from God's Word spoken to us, even preached to us from the pulpit, serves as a protection to keep us from temptation. That's point number one, protection. Point number one, protection. Now point number two. Beauty. Point number two, beauty. Verses 25 and 26. Look again at verse 25. The parents say in verse 24 that their goal is to preserve their son from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Because it's a father and a mother speaking to a son, their concern is women that would lead him astray. If they were speaking to a daughter, it would be flipped around. They would be speaking about evil men, and there are many evil men in this world that will seek to lead young women astray. But here, for their son, the temptation is an evil woman. And look at the command, verse 25 and 26. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down. A precious life. We heard from Matthew chapter 5 this morning that God is concerned not only with adultery, and He is concerned with adultery, but He's concerned with the adultery of the heart, with having desires that oppose Him, with harboring up in our heart adulteries in our minds, in our hearts, even before it gets to actual adultery. But here we see the father and the mother encouraging the young son not even to seek to desire the beauty of a woman that is not his wife. To keep his heart from being drawn into such a desire. They're concerned with his heart, not just with his actions. Because it is through our heart that our actions end up flowing. Out of the abundance of the heart, Jesus says the mouth speaks. But also out of the abundance of the heart comes all kinds of evil deeds. And that's the reality here. Now, the fascinating thing is he's actually telling his son not to desire beauty, to not desire beauty. What an interesting command. Beauty is ultimately a gift from God. Beauty in this world, which is everywhere, and even in a fallen world, which can be glimpsed as you look outside and see the beautiful sky, the clouds, the color of the sky, as you feel the wind. As you see the flowers and the beautiful trees, as you see the mountains that are snow-capped this morning and the blue sky behind it, there is beauty all over this world. And beauty ultimately is a a reflection, a refraction of God's beauty. Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. That is, the majesty and glory of the world that we live in and of the universe that we live in is speaking something to us about the grandeur the majesty and the beauty of God. Why is this world, a beautiful world in this universe, spectacularly beautiful? Well, because it was created by a beautiful God who captured in the beauty of this universe, in the beauty of this world, a reflection, a refraction, a glimpse of how beautiful He is. And God has even, in human beings, given a beauty that reflects Something of what his beauty is like. Beauty is a wonderful thing. All of us have been created to be drawn, to be attracted to beauty. It's natural to us. And we should enjoy beauty. It's God's plan for us to enjoy beauty. He wants us to delight in beauty that He's created. However, in a fallen world, beauty can be dangerous. And we see here that there are some beauties in this world that are reflections of God's beauty, refractions of his glorious beauty that we should not delight in, that we should not put our eyes on. And the particular thing in mind here is the beauty of a woman that is not your spouse. Or for women, the beauty of a man that is not your spouse. In other words, in a fallen world, our... Understanding and appreciation of beauty is skewed, and even beauty, which is good, can be twisted and misused. It can be misused by a beautiful person who uses their beauty to draw people after them, to get people to worship them, or to lead them into sin, like we see here. Beauty can also be pursued wrongly as we desire beauty that is not false. Let me speak for a moment to the married people here this morning. God has given you, if you are married, a beautiful spouse. And if you are married, that spouse's beauty is yours. But it's yours alone. It is for you and not for anyone else. That is, the beauty of your spouse is for you to delight in and to enjoy, and for no one else to And when you look around and see the beauty of another person, you are to draw your eyes away from that person. You are not to think about their beauty, knowing and remembering their beauty is not for you. It's for their spouse. Their beauty was created by God not for you to enjoy, but for their spouse to enjoy and to enjoy fully. In a fallen world, we're often confused by beauty, and we must be careful that we're not drawn in to beauty that is not for us. In marriage, a husband and a wife can enjoy each other completely and the beauty of one another completely. But their beauty is to be for themselves, for each other, and not for anyone else. And it's in God's design of the covenant of marriage that beauty can be enjoyed and appreciated and delighted in fully. And if we are to enjoy this beauty fully, we must also cut off our delight in seeking to delight in any other beauty. That is, we are to, if we're married, focus and funnel all of the attention, all of the focus of our minds and hearts and eyes on our wives, on our husbands, and them alone. In the the words of the old jazz standard, I only have eyes for you. This should be the reality for us as Christian husbands and wives. My father father always told me what his... uh, Bible professor told him in college, he told them, young men, you are not to be a connoisseur of beauty, looking and assessing and evaluating beauty and comparing your spouse to other women. No, he said, your wife is your standard of beauty. She's the only one for you. Delight in her and her alone. Enjoy her and her alone. There is enough beauty in her for you to enjoy for the rest of your life. Don't look for beauty elsewhere. We see in this passage, not only the command not to desire in your heart the beauty of an adulterous woman, but also not only the internal desire, but also the external allure of particularly her eyelashes as she seeks to draw you in with a look. And you see the reason here. He says, verse 26, the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. What he's saying here is that there may be some fee, some price, some specific price for a prostitute, but the ultimate cost of sexual immorality is actually your own life. (laughs) Giving in to sexual temptation actually leads to losing your life. And that's going to be talked about more fully in our next section let me say one final word of application here for you if you are single and you're considering marriage i often talk to young people who talk with me about people that they're interested in i'm always trying to find out why are you interested in that particular person what is it that attracts you to them And I've found myself as a pastor through the years recommending godly young women to godly young men and recommending godly young men to godly young women. And I often get this response from immature single people. Well, I'm just not attractive to this person or that person. And I will challenge them on this point, having passages like this in mind, that the reality is we must, have a concern with what it is that we're attracted to. And I'll often hear this response. Well, I can't help what I'm attracted to. I can't help what I'm attracted to. Let me say to you, young single people, you must help what you're attracted to. If you are to survive in a marriage that will last 50 years or longer, you must help what you're attracted to. This passage commands us to help what we're attracted to and to only be attracted if we get married to one person and only one person for the rest of our lives. But let me encourage you single person, not only must you help what you're attracted to, but you must acquire a taste for true beauty. You must acquire a taste for true beauty. I remember as a young man in college going through an art appreciation class. Um, I found it rather boring. But part of the art appreciation class was not only seeing all of these paintings through the Renaissance and sculptures, but there was a portion of this art appreciation class that included music appreciation. And we were required to listen to old, boring, classical music and to learn to appreciate it. My professor, Dr. Kaufman, told us as an offhand comment that Johann Sebastian Bach was the greatest composer of the Western world. And I thought, wow, that's quite a statement. What about Mozart or Beethoven? But he said, no, it's Bach. And then he said, of all of Bach's, of all of Bach's uh, music that he wrote, his greatest piece is the St. Matthew Passion." I thought, oh, wow, not only is this the greatest composer, but now he's saying this is the greatest piece of the greatest composer. Well, I must listen to this. So I went to the library, and I got out of the library the three discs, yes, CDs, of Johann Sebastian Jock's St. Matthew Passion. And I went back to my dorm room. This was circa 2001. And I opened up my three-disc changer, and I put the three discs in the three-disc changer, one, two, three. And I played them all on repeat for the next month. I just decided, if this is good, I clearly don't have ears for what's good. If this is beautiful, I clearly have some misunderstanding of, of what is beautiful. And so what needs to change is not the, this thing out there, but what needs to change is me. I don't have the ability to grasp and to appreciate true beauty. So I decided to give myself bit of an education in beauty and I remember turning on the St. Matthew Passion and hearing these vibrato sopranos and laughing I thought it was funny but I thought clearly somebody else is hearing something that I'm not so I'm just gonna listen for a while and I did and over the days and the weeks that followed I went from hmm to hmm to to wow To then trying to figure out the German translation of what was being talked about and realizing that this was not just beautiful music, but that this was talking about Christ, his life, his death, and the passion that he went through for paying for sin like us. And all of a sudden I went from not just appreciating it to being moved to my core by it. I began to weep at Times when I would listen to certain pieces and read the translation of the German into English and realize what they're reflecting on. And the beauty of the music touched my soul. I began to grow in my appreciation for beautiful music that I didn't have a taste for. Turn with me to 1 Peter, really quickly. To 1 Peter chapter 3. And look for a moment to what Peter says about beauty. He says something incredible about beauty. He has in mind here in 1 Peter 3, 1-7, to that there are going to be godly women who get saved after having gotten married to unbelieving husbands. In other words, two unbelievers get married and then the wife gets saved. She comes to know Christ. And now she's in this mixed marriage. And What is she to do? Well, look at what he says. He says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one, that is, one to Christ, without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now look at what he says. Do not let your adorning be external, And I think what's meant here is merely external. That is, don't simply be concerned with adorning or dressing yourself up on the outside. The braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. That is not just your clothes and your accessories. But you are, young women, to be adorning yourselves. Women. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now what's Peter saying here? He's saying that there is a kind of beauty that is not merely external. Now, the writer here in Proverbs is talking about external beauty, and he's calling us not to be drawn in to external beauty that is not our own. But what is Peter saying here? There's another kind of beauty. A beauty that is more precious, that is actually imperishable. It will not perish or fade away. The beauty of a godly soul. In other words, what Peter is saying is that as you think about beauty, there is a spiritual beauty that is of greater worth and value than simply physical beauty. And what this means is, like me with Bach and the St. Matthew Passion, You young people, you single people who want to be married, you need to be acquiring a taste and developing the ability to see true beauty. To see it, to treasure it, to value it, and to hold it to be of more value than mere physical beauty. What this means is that if you are thinking about getting married, you should be thinking not just what is the most beautiful woman that I can find who would agree to marry me, but you should be thinking who is the godliest woman that I can convince to marry me. In other words, yes, physical beauty matters, but there is a spiritual beauty that is of such, a such infinitely more important value that what you realize is that beauty is what matters more than mere physical beauty. And there is a a spiritual beauty inside the soul of a, a beautiful woman that for a man should be attractive as he sees that spiritual beauty shine through her features. There should be in godly men a kind of beauty that young women see when they have a beautiful soul because they're looking like Christ more and more. That becomes attractive to you and that attraction can even grow. I've told people that the story of, uh, of my getting to know and dating Bev many times, and we like to laugh that neither of us were really each other's type. We are now, but we weren't then. And in fact, when Bev first met me, believe it or not, she was not attracted to me. It's okay, I've gotten over it. But attraction for us was something that grew as we got to know each other better, as we got to see what each other were like, as we got to see the things that each other valued, as we loved the conversations that we would have. And the more and more we got to know each other and to see something of what the other was like, the more that we were drawn to each other and the more that attraction for each other grew. And that attraction has only grown and grown through 10 years of marriage. I'm more attracted to my wife today than I was when we got married. Because of the beauty inside of her that I see shining through day in and day out. Let me encourage you young people to be growing and developing a taste for true beauty and not drawn into mere physical beauty that will lead you into sin and away from God. That's point number two, beauty. Point number two, beauty, verses 25 and 26. And now, point number three, the cost. Point number three, cost, verses 27 to 35. Look first there at 27 to 29. The parents give two rhetorical questions. Rhetorical questions are questions where the answer is not given, but they are assumed. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Answer? No. If you bring fire, into your chest, you will be burned. Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? And I know some of you are thinking about some show or special that you've seen of someone walking on hot coals and not being burned. But what is the answer to this rhetorical question in general? If you walk on hot coals, what's going to happen? You will be burned. The answer is no. What is the parents saying here what are they saying they're saying if you play with fire you will get burned you cannot play with fire and not get burned and the association that must be made here is between sexual sin and fire if you play with sexual sin you will get burned it will burn do not think that it's a game or that you're playing around No, this is incredibly serious. Look at verse 29. So is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her. Think of carrying fire, walking on hot coals. None who touches her will go unpunished. The point here is that there are always consequences for sin. Look at what follows then in verses 30 and 31. Another illustration. Here is now not an illustration of playing with fire, but of committing a crime. Look at verse 30. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he's hungry. But if he's caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. What does this mean? What is the point here? Well, every crime has consequences. And if you think of all the crimes that you could commit, you put them all on a scale, and you think of which ones are perhaps more forgivable, and others that are more heinous. On one end of that spectrum, you think of the man who is so hungry that he steals a loaf of bread to eat. If you're on a jury and this man is brought before you, are you going to look at him with anger and think of him as a cruel person, or are you going to look on him with compassion and not despise him? Well, if he's so hungry and so poor, That he's simply stealing to eat. What are most of us going to have on this person? We're going to have compassion. We're not going to despise such a person. However, there's still laws. And what's going to happen to someone who steals? There's still going to be consequences. So even with the least sin, if we can think of it that way, there are always consequences. And those consequences are serious. He's going to have to pay back. And not just one for one. Sevenfold. He may even have to sell the goods of his house to have enough to pay back the sevenfold. There's still going to be serious consequences for every crime. But what about the sin of adultery? Is it small like this? Those who give in to sexual temptation and sexual sin, is it a small crime? No. The writer of Proverbs here is saying, no, it is a serious crime. Look at 32 to 35. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. Yes. Now, the parents here are doing a, an amazing thing, a surprising thing. We're going to see next week from Proverbs chapter 7 what temptation looks like through. The eyes of the person being tempted. All of Proverbs 7 is this picture of a young man who gets drawn into sexual immorality and what that temptation process looks like. Here, however, the father and the mother put the the end result of giving in to sexual immorality. They put the end result up front. They warn the young person by showing what's going to happen after the temptation. Because what temptation does is it lies to you. It tells you there won't be consequences. It tells you you can enjoy this and there will be no costs. But what the father and mother do is they put the sin of adultery in front of their son through the eyes of the aggrieved husband. In other words, they put the sin of sexual immorality through the eyes of the husband who's been sinned against. In other words, if you... Give in to sexual temptation and have sex with someone who is someone else's wife. What is that husband going to think about what you've done? How is that husband going to view what you've done? How is that husband going to view his wife and you, the one who has offended him, by sleeping with his wife? What is that husband going to do? He's going to be jealous. And what is he going to do? He's going to take things into his own hands. What is that going to look like? Revenge. And what does that mean for you? Well, it may mean you lose your life. The picture that the parents put here is the most extreme example of sexual sin in this world. And an aggrieved husband taking matters into his own hands and seeking after the one who has slept with his wife. You think about sin and temptation being something that doesn't going to hurt anyone, that doesn't affect anyone. And what is this saying? What is the reality? Is that true? No, every sin has consequences. And sexual sin, of all sins, comes at a terrible cost. We can see something of it through the eyes of the husband who finds out that his wife has been unfaithful to him. The husband who finds out that his wife has another lover. We can see something of the evil of that Sin, when we look at it through the eyes of the husband who's been treated in this way. The anger, the vengeance that's in his heart and his mind. Jealousy is a good thing. Jealousy is a gift from God. And it is dangerous, but it is good. The Bible says that God is a jealous God. that He is jealous for his people to worship him and him alone and to to delight in him in him alone and to be faithful people before him. But only God is the one who can enact such jealousy rightly and justly. His vengeance is always good and right and just. His punishment is always perfect. But when we are jealous, it leads us into sin. As James chapter one says, the wrath of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. But if you are married, I'm sure you have a sense for what this is like. If you can look at sin through the eyes of a husband or a wife. I even now sometimes get angry when I hear of some of the guys that led my wife on and mistreated her. And that's small ways compared to this when she was single. I get angry at those guys. I kind of hate those guys in my heart. Because they were unkind to my wife. They played with her heart in order to assuage their own egos. I get angry at them, and I'm a bit jealous because of what they did with my wife when she was young. But you think of the jealousy that comes with sexual immorality. That's to give us something of a taste for what ultimately is the greatness of sin against God. You see, there's always an offended party when it comes to our sin. Whether the offended party are human beings, even if there aren't, When it comes to our sin, God is always the offended party. And when it comes to our sin, every sin, whether you think of it as simply being against another person, all sin is ultimately against God. All sin is ultimately in the face of God, is a rebellion against God. And all sin, God will one day punish. And he will be exacting and perfect and just in his vengeance towards sin. Every sin will cost and all of us are guilty and are in God's debt and we have a debt that we could never pay. But the wonderful thing about the gospel, the wonderful thing about the message that God's word gives to us is that though the wages of sin is death, though we have earned death by our sin, by, by our heinous sin before God and even against others, that we've earned for ourselves death, Christ came in order to pay the penalty for our sin, in order to pay to the full the cost that our sin had accrued. The, the wonderful thing about the Gospel message is that Jesus, the innocent one, the perfect one, God become man, lived a perfect life, a life that we didn't live. He suffered and died on the cross as a criminal, as if he deserved punishment. But he didn't. But he did it in order to pay for the sins of you and of me if we will repent and trust in Christ. And the remarkable thing that happens in that moment if we turn from our sins and trust in Christ is Jesus pays for all of it. There is a a transaction that takes place. And what Jesus did on the cross is then credited to us and to our account. And we go from being infinitely in God's debt to being immediately innocent before Him. That debt paid in full. And not only us being not guilty, but being righteous. Being accredited with Christ's righteousness. The perfect life that He lived is now credited to us. And God looks at us in the same way that He looks at His Son as being perfect and as actually being his own sons and daughters. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I know that a passage like this is heavy. It should be heavy because your sin and my sin is heavy because all of us have a debt that we owe to God. But praise Jesus, that debt can be taken away if you will but turn from your sin and trust in Christ there was a, a news item, as, as we conclude, about uh, three years ago. There was an online uh, dating site that had the, the tagline, life is short, have an affair. And the picture, when you would go to this website, had a woman with a finger over her lips saying, "shh," and it was a, a website It was actually designed to connect people for the sake of adultery. Someone hacked this website and then took all of the information of everyone that had ever registered or logged into this site, and they published it online. The remarkable thing about this news story was that many thousands of people had thought that they could dabble or consider or even give in to adultery and be anonymous, be private. They could hide it. They could take part in adultery and no one would ever find out. And then they woke up one morning and all of a sudden their information was out there. Single people, husbands, fathers, CEOs, businessmen, government leaders, pastors. All of a sudden what they thought was a private sin had gone public. It had gone viral. Their... Sin that they thought they could hide. That they believed it won't hurt anyone. It isn't a big sin. It won't have any consequences. No one will find out. It will bring me pleasure. And it won't cost me anything. was proven wrong. In a moment, it was proven wrong. And lives were destroyed like we see the promise of the Father and the Son in Proverbs 6. But That situation, while it seems scary, is nothing in comparison with what will happen on the final day when all of us will have to give an account to God and not to others, not to wives, not to children, but to God. And He will be our judge. And He will never wink at sin. Let me (laughs) encourage you, brothers and sisters, if you are holding on to secret sin, let it go. Bring it to the light. Bring others into your sin. Have, Have them help you like the father and the mother. Speak to you, watch over you, talk with you. Encourage you, point you to the truth. Help you to repent. And realize that any shame that you'll see in this life is nothing in comparison with what will happen on that final day. Where every sin will be paid for, either by ourselves or by Christ. Let me encourage you. Cling to Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we know that sin is deceitful. We know that even this morning, we are tempted to walk away from You and to believe lies about our sin. Father, I pray that You would burst our bubble. That You would prove such ideas wrong. That You would press upon us the weight of our sin so that we would run to Christ and find our sins forgiven. And find that He paid it all. We pray that You would do this so that we would find the joy that can only be found through sins forgiven and through reconciliation with You, our good and loving God. We pray that You would do this before it is too late. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.